Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life do not feel like themselves and are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we'll be providing evidence-based, fundamental, and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We'll be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness as all these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Sally McFedrin, an OBGYN with Metro Health System in Cleveland. She's an associate professor at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine and has a focus on menopause and sexual health in her clinic. She's on the board of the International Society of the Study of Women's Sexual Health and the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative. Today, she'll be talking about the evaluation and treatment of anorgasmia. Please enjoy this podcast. Today, we have again... Dr. Sally McFedrin, who's a OBGYN with the Metro Health System in Cleveland. She has a, a great focus on menopause and sexual health and is involved in many, many things. We're very happy to have her talk about anorgasmia today. Thank you, Sally, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank um, you, Dr. Gibbs. And we want to talk about anorgasmia, as I said. But before we do, Sally and I would really like to give a shout out to the Medical Student Forum on Female Sexual Medicine in Chicago. This is a, a group of students from all the different medical schools in Chicago that are interested in, in female sexual medicine. And we're very excited to be involved with them. They're allowing us to be on their social media pages. And we're very grateful for that, but we're very happy to be working with them. So that there's a shout out to them. And so let's start off our conversation with Sally, would you define anorgasmia for us? Sure, Terry. So anorgasmia is defined as a decrease in the sensation, either a delay in the orgasm response, a decrease in frequency of the orgasm. It's also maybe a diminished sensitivity or a complete absence of orgasm. It has to be there more than 75% of the time, and it has to have been occurring for more than six months. The other thing is that like many of the other sexual dysfunctions we've talked about, it has to cause distress to the individual, and it also can't be explained by any other situation. So bad relationships or any other medical conditions or non-sexual psychiatric conditions. We also make a separate delineation for those who say that they've never been able to have an orgasm. What's the difference between primary and secondary? So as I alluded, primary would be those who say they've never been able to have an orgasm. And secondary would be a woman who says that they've been able to have an orgasm and then have lost it or it has changed dramatically in terms of sensitivity or frequency. And primary is interesting because sometimes we have to do some education. I, I, I was going to say I love this topic because it's just riddled with wealth of education for, for women. For primary, is that something that a practitioner like you would do or would you work with one of your uh, counselors? So primary anorgasmia typically is dealt with a sex therapist. 
And and the reason being is, and, and I was kind of saying this is a lot of education here, is because women don't necessarily realize that it takes a little time to get to know your anatomy. So most primary anorgasmia, they say, is just anatomic naivety. So they just don't know their body where where things feel good, or there's some anxiety or angst about it, kind of similar to men having performance anxiety. There's this concern that they're supposed to feel a certain way and they just don't know. And, you know, historically, Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey, who'd done a lot of research in this area, had found that by age 11-ish, about 10% of women had figured out what orgasm was. And by age 20, only 50% of women had figured this out. And by 35 years old, only 90%. So there's still some room to grow because we know that women, you know, in this age group sometimes have some angst about it, but maybe it's just that they just need a little bit more time, need a little bit more practice. So many times the sex therapists are the ones to just provide the education for these women. When we think about female sexual dysfunction, we always talk about thinking about it in the biopsychosocial model. And could you explain a little bit about the mechanism of anorgasmia in in that model? I mean, even for primary, but even for secondary anorgasmia, we look at it in terms of the relationship. So is the patient attracted to their partner? Is there an issue with maybe what the patient or what the partner is doing? So we'll ask, you know, do you find what your partner is doing you know, is it making you aroused? Do you enjoy it? Are you thinking in your head, I wish they would touch me a little bit differently? Are they feeling anxious about, you know, are they going to have an orgasm? We also will think about like what other stressors they have in their life. Certainly, we know that women who are carrying a lot of stress either at work or financially or with family members, maybe aren't able to relax. And if their body can't relax, then they're obviously not going to be able to respond. The biology part for secondary anorgasmia is very important because this is somebody who had an orgasm and potentially lost it. And, you know, if they're with a partner that is usually pleasing them and then it changed, that one we want to look a little bit more. Maybe there's medications that they're taking. Maybe there is some kind of, you know, new medical condition that could be interfering. We know just like for men, beta blockers, antipsychotics, antidepressants, a lot of medications can interfere. So we're going to look at the medication list pretty extensively in these women. And of course, the psychiatric conditions. So as I mentioned, the antidepressants, but also just having depression, being anxious, having poor body image, having a history of sexual trauma, those things sometimes resurface and can cause problems with, you know, not just desire or arousal, but also the orgasm response too. What's the incidence of this issue? So interestingly, as I mentioned, you know, for the younger women under 45, it's only about 3%. Because if you hit 35 years old, like I said, 90%, and this is by the the Kinsey data, he had interviewed about 5,000 women just in terms of what their orgasm response. And so he found that, (laughs) yeah, 5,000 histories of sex, right? About at 35, 90% experience it. But even of the remaining 10%, 8% still have this like very satisfying plateau. The incidence in this age group is only about 3%. It actually gets worse as women get older from like 45 to 65. And this is data from the Preside study. And and actually Masters and Johnson has some of this data too. It's only about 6%. And then this persists, the 6% persists even past 65, but then it 
you know, starts to dwindle in the 80s. And that's typically because women become less active. So so place that in relationship to the other sexual dysfunctions we talk about, like the arousal, about the, you know, uh, interest, desire, and pain. Insofar as th- they're all concerned, where does this land? Which how how high up is this one? So this one's relatively low. And again, this is the Preside study. The Preside study was a cross-sectional survey study of over thirty thousand women in the U.S. And this is fairly recent. And they found that sexual desire was the number one sexual dysfunction that was noted. And this one, you know, peaks at about twelve to fifteen percent. 10 to 11% is usually about average. And then arousal is under that. Pain wasn't necessarily in that study. Again, that one depends on the age because there's a bimodal distribution. There's a lot of younger women with sexual pain, but then sexual pain also becomes an issue as women go through menopause and there's vaginal atrophy. So there's that other issue. I think with orgasm, it's it's interesting because it's hard to really keep it separate because it just so intertwined with pain and with desire and arousal. If the female genitals are not getting aroused and engorged as their male counterparts, it would cause issues with being able to orgasm. So yeah, it's kind of hard to single this out. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So what does the, the sexual history look like of somebody that comes in and their main complaint, concern, worry is, you know, I can't, enjoy an orgasm. So this one is always interesting because I've had several women referred to me because they ha- they tell their provider they have an issue with orgasm. And I will first ask them, you know, just tell me what your orgasm's like. And, you know, they'll say, well, I don't know. So that's one option. Or they think that they should be able to have an orgasm with penetration. And this is a huge myth. This is where I say this is just a a subject with lots of education. And I tell women that there's lots of studies that show only 25 to 30% of women can have an orgasm with actual penetration. The majority of women need external stimulation to have their orgasm. And even then, it doesn't happen all the time. Because that's another fallacy is women think, well, if I have an orgasm, I should be able to have it all the time. Because, you know, again, they're comparing themselves to somebody else or to television or to movies. And I will tell them, I'm just like, if you have a thousand women in the room, these are all women that raise their hand, you know, hey, do you have an orgasm? They all say, yes, I can have an orgasm. And you ask them, well, how often does it happen when you're having penetration? And they say, well, you know, and these are women who have orgasms of penetration, they'll say only 50 to 70% of the time. And I think women don't realize that there's so many things that physiologically and mentally that can interfere with the orgasm sensation and can interfere with that brain body connection that it doesn't happen all the time. Even, you know, there was a more recent study of, you know, it was a internet survey. They found that women who masturbate, there's no partner, there's no anxiety, there's no performance issues. Even if you're just masturbating at home alone, only 60% of women have an orgasm with masturbation. Like they don't, like I said, if I feel like I'm constantly debunking what is on movies and Cosmopolitan magazine, you know, the whole multi-orgasmic woman, it's almost a unicorn. So, <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, it, it brings up, you know, people talk about the G spot or C spot, whatever you call it. And I mean, how do you deal with that? 
Do, do people ask you about that? Oh, often? Yes. So that was actually fun. So the Grafenberg thought was uh, named after a gynecologist, a German gynecologist, and he actually mapped it out anatomically to an anterior portion, approximately two centimeters within the vagina between the urethra. There's erectile tissue. I mean, he has, you know, like cross-sectional histology of it. There's erectile tissue all around this particular area. And what I tell women is, you know, I'll give them a picture diagram of what the clitoris looks like and show them that they're only seeing not just the tip of the iceberg, like just the tiny nubbin of the tip of the iceberg on the outside, that there are these four inch wings straddling the urethra. And I'll tell them, you know, there's huge variations in anatomy that can contribute to whether they can have orgasms with penetration or where they feel their orgasms, because sometimes these tips of the wings tilt a little bit more down into the anterior portion of the vagina, sometimes not, sometimes they're beefier. There's also differences in the neuropeptide distribution in the clitoral tissue. There's huge variations. So yes, I'll tell them that there is this G-spot. Some women have more sensitivity, some do not, but there's many books that are what we call how-to books, the bibliotherapy that we've talked about in the past, that they can try and explore where their sensitive spots are. Not all women have the sensitivity on the head of the clitoris as others do. So so in the sexual history, the, the perception's different, and, and it, you, you keep uh, bringing the, this up that the patient really is unaware a lot of times of where their sensitivity is. And so what do you do as an evaluation for anorgasmia? So primary anorgasmia, as I mentioned, typically we refer to our sex therapist to have them, you know, talk about what their understanding is of their body, work with them in terms of how their concept is of orgasm. So in terms of evaluating them, I usually will have a sex therapist work with primary anorgasmia first. But since we don't have a sex therapist here, their primary treatment is relaxation techniques, meditation. They will also do self-directed masturbation with what we call bibliotherapy. The books that they'll use, one is Becoming Orgasmic, which is an oldie but a goodie by Julia Hyman. And then one of the more recent ones is Come As You Are by Emily Nagasi. Those are great books. And 80 to 90% of the time, women who've never been able to experience an orgasm will be able to with those techniques. In terms of secondary anorgasmia, in terms of how we evaluate it, there's two different approaches. You can look at it as what are the systems involved in an orgasm? So you have the brain and how it processes. You have the hormone system. You have the neurologic. You have vascular and, of course, muscles because an orgasm is a contraction of the pelvic floor muscles and there can be problems there. So you can look at it that way or you can look at it anatomically. So from the outside in, looking at the clitoral tissue, looking for reflexes, feeling the pelvic floor, kind of difficult to do more central nervous system evaluations, certainly for a gynecologist, but you're going to look at that. When I evaluate it, some of the stuff I asked before in terms of that biopsychosocial model, I'm going to really get into what they're doing with their partner, if it is satisfying. And then, of course, like looking at the psychiatric conditions, medications, the biology. But I'm going to look and see if their reflexes are intact and there's a bulbocavernosis reflex. 
urogynecologists will call it the anal wink, where you just gently stroke on the labia majora, and you can see the anal verge kind of retract inwards. Sometimes you'll see the posterior fourchette or the space between the vaginal opening and the anal opening kind of shift up and down. You just gently stroke upwards with, you know, on either side. And I've seen variations where some women have a robust reflex on one side and none on the other. You can also do just peripheral sensitivity testing. You can take like an alcohol swab and test for cold and hot on the perineum. You can also check for sharp. So taking like a Q-tip, like the wooden Q-tip, the old-fashioned ones, breaking it and check for sharp delineations and see if there's a decrease in sensitivity on one side or both sides. And then you want to make sure that you can retract back the hood of the clitoris, making sure there's no phimosis or adhesions because that can interfere with orgasm response. The pelvic floor is still a very, very significant portion of this because an orgasm is felt by the woman as a pelvic floor contraction of the levators. So if they're hypertoned, it's very difficult for some of those women to have an orgasm. And if there's too much tone, it can also impinge the nerves that go to the clitoris. And of course, then you also want to assess, you know, any temporal relationship to trauma. So women who, you know, have a herniated disc, maybe they have bowel or bladder dysfunction and checking for deep tendon reflexes and just in general nerve reflexes and tone of the lower extremities too. So that that's what I will entail if I find any neurologic issues, then I'm definitely going to rope in my neurologist. And I can tell you, I found a slew of different neurologic problems during this evaluation. Like, like MS. I found that. Wow, really? Yeah. So I've seen asymmetry of that bulbocavernosis reflex and the only presenting symptom that they had was anorgasmia. And then similarly, I've had women who I've diagnosed herniated discs. You know, as a gynecologist, I don't remember all the details, but some kind of ankylosing spondylitis of the like lumbar area. Interesting neurologic stuff for yeah, sure. Good pickups. What kind of medical problems, you know, if somebody comes in, gives you a past medical history, what kind of medical problems are, are going to just cause the red lights to go on to to be concerned about secondary anorgasmia. Long-standing diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension, anything that's going to be contributing to peripheral vascular disease. Because again, similarly, how we were talking about that desire and arousal and everything being intertwined, lack of arousal. So the endothelial cells in the clitoris and genital tissues are responsive to estrogen, which then increases nitrous oxide. It causes the vasodilation of the tissue, or the clitoral tissue. And if that can't happen because of peripheral vascular disease, then the clitoris can't get erect. And then it's very difficult to have orgasm or it's a very, very diminished response. And this happens with, you know, all of those conditions, hypertension, diabetes, menopause is a very... I'm just, just going to ask if... What's the me mechanism for, for menopause causing anorgasmia? The thought is it's lack of testosterone and estrogen, which are the key endocrine hormones that contribute to the nitrous oxide and this, you know, rush of vascular inflow for the erectile tissue. So many women with menopausal issues with orgasm will say that it takes forever. Like they'll try and try and try. And then when they get there, it's like, oh, that's it. You know, <laughs> I waited all that time. And, and it's, oh, that's a disappointment. So that that's kind of what happens with menopause. So, okay. What do you do? 
you you've got a, a number of diagnoses here. What, what do you what can you offer people to help them? So this one is where that evaluation is key. So if I think it's you know vascular, I'm going to hit hard anything that's going to improve vascular function. So I will often joke it's like aerobic exercise for the clitoris. So self stimulation with a vibrator you know, and I'll say three or four times a week, five to 10 minutes max, the goal isn't necessarily orgasm. It's just to improve blood flow to that area. And, you know, and they'll say, well, what's the point? And I'm like, well, the point is just like if you were doing, you know, a mile on the treadmill, one mile is not going to do anything. But if you do a mile over and over and over again, you're going to condition your heart. It's going to have better blood flow, better you know, oxygen use better. And then in this case, better nitrous oxide use and utilization. And so eventually over time, that orgasm response will be more active. You might even recruit more endothelial growth in that situation. There are other things that improve this too. So there's a variety of different, I call them female enhancers, but scream cream is one, Sensuvia, Zestro is actually one that's studied in randomized control trials to improve, you know, blood flow to the clitoris and found to improve arousal and orgasm function. Doesn't smell good, but it works. And then you can use Viagra, just like for men. That one's been studied in women with diabetes that have arousal or orgasm problems and shown to improve, you know, orgasm response and arousal response, similar to what happens with the penis. What about your, your neurologic issues? So, yeah, so that one, again, if there's the nerve injury, then I need my neurologist to really image their spine and fix the problem. So if they have a herniated disc, they need to fix this. If they have had a stroke, if they have had, you know, MS, that needs to be treated. I can't really get around that. But I do tell them if we improve blood flow, if there's a this is, again, looking at it more anatomically, if there it's a superficial nerve issue compared to a central or more nerve root issue, if it's more peripheral damage, potentially if we improve blood flow, we might be able to recruit nerve endings in that area. So I will, again, hit it hard with self-stim masturbation, these female enhancers, Viagra. And I tell them, I was like, yeah, for a while, orgasm is not going to be, you know, fun. This is going to be a serious exercise. Like you're training for a marathon because you're going to have to do Viagra 30 to 45 minutes before you're going to do your masturbation exercises. Your female enhancers, 10 minutes, you massage it into the clitoris, 10 minutes before you get your vibrator at, and then you use your vibrator for five to 10 minutes. And you're going to do this four times a week. You got to really be committed to get your orgasm back. And and we can even add something called L-arginine, which is an amino acid to Viagra to even improve its efficacy. Like I said, that's what I'll do, even if it's a what I think is a peripheral nerve issue. And then but you've I, already gone over medications too, that um, what do you do if you have a, a suspect medication that might be interfering? So the big ones are, at least in the female population, are going to be beta blockers and antidepressants. So going back to their therapist, their psychiatrist, and asking if they can substitute or at least add on Wellbutrin to their SSRI, as long as they don't have any contraindication, sometimes that will help counteract some of the SSRI effects, even on orgasm. Beta blockers, I'll ask them to try and change it to maybe a calcium channel blocker, because that has a little bit better profile for orgasm. Some of the other medications I didn't necessarily mention, but what seems 
somewhat obvious alcohol, benzodiazepines, even methamphetamines and narcotics. I mean, we want to try and wean everybody off narcotics if we can, or at least substitute medications that impact their orgasm less. And I think a, a lot of people, it always comes up in the discussion, but does CBT or THC inhibit or does it help in your experience? So this one, there isn't a ton of data, but what we have, it kind of is the, a little bit might be okay, but a lot or chronic use might be bad. So if there's a pelvic floor issue, definitely it can relax the pelvic floor in little doses to help if there is, you know, hypertonus, in which case the pelvis can't relax and then it can't relax enough to actually build up and have a, a contraction. But if you have too much, then the pelvis is too relaxed and it's not going to be able to contract in an orgasm response. If there is anxiety or performance anxiety, it can again help in that relaxation. That's another question I'll ask women. Like, do they feel that they're like, what, what are they thinking about when they're being sexually active? And if they feel that their mind's wandering, having more mindfulness might be helpful to help them focus. And sometimes CBD and marijuana can help in that capacity, help the women who are having mindful issues and not being able to be present. But again, a little bit is okay. Too much probably is going to interfere with the sexual response. That makes sense. Finally, I wanted to ask if you would give us the big picture now. You know, we talked about, we focused on anorgasmia, but as we have alluded to, you know, it's one of several female sexual dysfunction diagnoses. Can you kind of put that together with a bow on it for us and, and relate anorgasmia to some of these other things and just how you think about these other issues with anorgasmia. So the way I approach it, the big picture is I always ask a woman, what is the most important thing that they want to address about their sexuality? Because even if a woman can't have an orgasm, having sexual satisfaction is still possible. And a lot of women will say, that the orgasm isn't you know necessary. I usually equate it as it's the cherry on top of a really good Sunday, but it doesn't have to be there to be able to enjoy the Sunday. So I'll ask them, what is it that we can do to make the sex life satisfying? And I'll also say like treating orgasm is like treating something in a bubble. You can't do treating the orgasm without not you know addressing the desire and the arousal, the relationship pain goes without saying, you know, if there's pain, then the whole brain just kind of shuts down. Well, I kind of look at it as it, it's the cherry on top of a really good sexual experience. And, and if we can make all of the sexual experience, like if we can improve the, the desire and we can improve the arousal and decrease pain, then we're one, more likely to have an orgasm, and two, we can make that orgasm response even better. Well, a, a tremendous presentation. Do you, do you have any other little nuggets of wisdom that you'd like to leave that we haven't talked about? I, I think the only thing that we really haven't talked about is just that there is a huge variation in like the orgasm response. So as I mentioned, you know, most women have their orgasm with clitoral stimulation, not with vaginal stimulation, but there's a couple the singers who looked at this and and Dr. Meston, who's in Texas, have described like 26 different variations of the orgasm response. 
And something that I think women don't realize is that they might have a very different physical response with clitoral stimulation. They might have a different response, like physically, if there is vaginal penetration and clitoral response. And just knowing that their body responds differently sometimes, and it might not always respond and being able to be comfortable having that conversation with your partner. Um, I think that would be, you know, probably the stuff that we haven't necessarily mentioned before. Well, thanks Sally for taking time out and, uh, we hope all your holidays are wonderful. And um, thanks again for being a great educator. And thank you so much for having me, Terry. Always fun to talk about sex and orgasm. <laughs> Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.